We're continuing today our series in 1 Peter with chapter 3, 13 through 17. Careful listeners who have been with us will have noticed that Peter always does something. Before he gives us a command, he's giving us an example. He gives us Christ as the example to encourage us, to strengthen us in our faith. And he's always quick to remind that the starting point for every single issue that we as Christians will ever face is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says if we commit sins, Jesus is our sacrifice. If we are condemned for sin, Jesus justifies us by grace through faith. If sin, guilt, shame holds us captive, Christ redeems and liberates us from it. If we are estranged from others, he reconciles us to himself. If we feel isolated, he adopts us into his big family. If we feel insignificant and small, the gospel says, no, you're part of a big plan. In society, we are called to be humble because Christ was humble. In our marriages, we are called to love because Christ loved the church. And in our jobs, we are to work hard as unto the Lord. And so Peter now moves to the central theme of the rest of the letter. There's very little left, but the rest of the letter is going to be about Christian persecution. You have to remember he's writing to the early church, people who are either going to suffer persecution or already have suffered persecution. And he wants to encourage them. He's saying the love of God turns the problem of persecution upside down. Because Christians, you are so free in Christ, you don't have to get revenge. You don't have to be afraid. Suffering for us becomes an opportunity to meet evil with good, sorrow with joy, and cursing with blessing. So there's really four key points in the text today. The first is in 314, in which he encourages us to live fearless lives before Men, or rather to develop a proper fear of the Lord, which will drive out those lesser fears. It's sensible to fear lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. But ultimately, the Lord is the one we fear above all other things. Secondly, in 315, we're told to be prepared to make a defense, to give a defense, and to give a reason for the hope that is within us. When persecution comes, we're not surprised. By it, we're ready for it. We're prepared. We're equipped by the gospel. We're empowered by the gospel. We're assured by the gospel. Thirdly, in 3.16, Peter urges us to keep a clear conscience so that when we do face attacks, unjust attacks, we're able to defend ourselves inwardly with a quiet conscience, a, a proper reverence for God. We know we've done nothing wrong. And God is our protector, our judge, and he will vindicate us either now or in the last day. And finally, if we do suffer, even if we die, the Lord has promised to be with his people. And that truth, that reality should liberate us to live bold lives, to stand firm in our faith, because we know that Christ who promised us is true. Follow along with me, if you will, in your Bibles. This is 1 Peter 3. 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of the Lord endures forever. Peter starts with a question. And it ties into last week's sermon. He says, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Meaning Christians who, who heed the counsel of Psalm 34, that's what we talked about last week, who want to see good days, these governments that we are under, that we've submitted ourselves to, are supposed to punish evildoers and promote those who are zealous for doing good. Now, we know because of sin that doesn't always happen. We know that's the reality. But the Bible says that's not the norm. That's not the norm, and it should not be the norm. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be Blessed. You see, that's the promise. That's the promise. He's not saying your chances to escape persecution will be better than others just because you're doing good. He's saying as believers, ultimately, you're under God's care and blessing. And that's what's important. As Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Psalm 56, 4, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Or consider Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Peter says, even if we do suffer in life, which we know from history, those Christians reading this letter, many of them might have died for the faith. He says, eternal harm cannot befall you. All that the forces of evil in this world can ever do is kill your body. And you say, well, wait a second. That's exactly what I'm scared about. (laughs) I like the body. I don't want the body to be killed. Don't want to die. That doesn't give me comfort. And that's that's a natural feeling. The reason you feel that way is because death is unnatural. You see, the world's told us that death is part of life and we should greet it like a friend. And the Bible says that's exactly wrong. Death is unnatural. When the world has put forth that idea, we have to combat it. The sting of death is there. We we weep at funerals. We do not weep as those without hope, but we weep because, because death is wrong. Death's an intruder, and when sin entered the world, it brought its partner along with it. It brought death with it. And that's why the Bible says death is not our friend. It's not the way things were meant to be. And the final enemy to be destroyed by Christ will be death once and for all. Now, on the cross, he defanged it. He de-stung it, if that's a word. He He took the fear of it away for us. And so we must learn as believers to exchange that fear, the fear of man, the fear of man pleasing, the fear of death and everything else for the fear of the Lord. Peter learned this from personal experience. Remember his thrice denial. I'll never do it, Lord. I'll never deny you. 
Three times he denies Christ. And then we observe him once more in the book of Acts. And it's like this whole new Peter is before us. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. And now he stands accused in front of the same tribunal that his Lord stood accused. And he testifies. Once he was scared of a little servant girl, now he stands before the high priest and says, you killed Jesus Christ. Wicked men. He's no longer silent. They say, be silent. He says, we must obey God rather than human beings. Now what happened? What changed for Peter? Well, he had lost the fear of man and replaced it with the fear of the risen Lord. And as we read from this passage, he had set apart Christ in his heart. He had honored Christ. He had revered Christ in his heart. He replaced despair with a living hope. And out of that hope was born a fiery courage. It's holy boldness. It's righteous bravery. It's Christian chutzpah. It's what we have by being empowered by the Holy Spirit, by setting apart Christ in our hearts. And the secret to having that courage was pronounced long ago by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah in 8, 12 through 13, Peter's quoting that here and he gives a Christian adaptation. Peter says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. Now listen to the full quote from Isaiah. He says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts. Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Isaiah says, Lord of hosts. Peter says, exactly, Jesus Christ. Exactly. Marvelous. Now, did you catch the secret? What's the secret to getting rid of fear? And there's a connection being made here between honoring Christ in our hearts to not being afraid of men in our hearts. Honoring Christ is the antidote. Now listen to verse 15 again. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And then there's the, con- the conjection word, the con- 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 connective word, I can't speak. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. So we're told to not be afraid. But Peter says, if you're not going to be afraid, then you have to have something to be hopeful about in the midst of fear. And then he says, now be prepared to make a defense. But in order to make a defense for our hope, we have to actually be hopeful. If we want to be Christians who are both fearless and hopeful, Peter says the solution is Christ being revered in our hearts. Isaiah 8, 14 makes it even clearer. If you follow along here in that passage, he says the next part there is that God, when we fear him, will become our sanctuary. Now, what's a sanctuary? A sanctuary is a place of refuge. It's a place of rest. And you go, well, that's a paradoxical statement. God's will be our dread, but then he'll be our sanctuary. He'll be our rest. How does that work? When we talk about the fear of the Lord, we're talking about holy honor, about reverence, about awe. And Isaiah is saying the thought of God being displeased with me is more fearful than the displeasure of men. 
Think of it this way. If my wife was constantly scared, if she was always worried about people breaking into our house, and she, she was with me, but she always felt not protected. She was always worried about that. How would I feel as her husband? Does she not trust that I promised to protect her? I made vows to honor and protect her and love her. And how would that make me feel? Well, have you ever wondered why God over and over and over and over in Scripture says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's because God is offended when his children fear everything else in this world other than him. God has made promises to his people that should take away our fear and it should fill us with hope. And so when we wake up and we read the news, like I read today about more, more shootings and more bombs and more wars and more death and more destruction, do we, do we succumb to despair? We have hope because the one who promised to be with us and protect us and the one who says, I will wipe away every tear from your eyes and I will take all those things that are sad and make them come untrue. That is the one we follow. He is our fear. He is our dread. He is our hope. He is our sanctuary. We should not fear what they fear for God is with us. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, I am with you. That's a promise. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Is God a liar? No. I will. I will. I will. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Promise after promise. Do we trust? Do we trust God to keep him? Do we trust that he will hold us and vindicate us? What does honoring Christ in our hearts mean? Well, it means trusting his word. It means seeing him as Peter has said earlier. He's our living hope. I wake up and I have Christ, my hope. My only hope in life and death. That's what the Heidelberg Catechism said. It means believing in all the promises of God, which the Bible says are now yes, simply yes in Christ. Promises like 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares about you. Verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, and strengthen you. Oh, do you believe it? It's so good. It's so good. And so we cast off the fear by honoring Christ. We say, yes, Christ. Yes, Lord. We believe it. And when we do it, then it prepares us. It prepares us to give a defense for the hope that is within us. Now, here's an interesting statistic. If I asked you, why do you think the number one reason is people ever come to church? Why do they come to a new church? What do you, what do you think the answer is? You know, think about it in your head for a second. The number one reason why new people come to a church is because 83% of people said, someone invited me. Someone told me about the hope that was in them. And they said, hey, would you want to come and, and hear about the hope? Would you want to come and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news? 83%. And 
And yet, how much fear do we have? I mean, even just the thought of inviting a friend or a neighbor or a co-worker to church, that sends some people into convulsions. Why are we so afraid of it? Why are we so afraid to give the reason for our hope? And I think, sadly, the answer is because we aren't very hopeful. We aren't. We give in to despair. We give in to fear. Or at least we aren't letting the hope shine forth in our daily lives. And if we aren't filling our hearts with the reverence for our Lord Christ, then when a situation does arise, when someone looks at you and says, could you tell me about the hope? You start going, okay, I got to get my, my doctrine right. I got to get the theology going. You start fumbling with words. You wor- Did I do it right? No, I messed it up. Oh, great. Now it's a duty. It's not a delight. It's a duty. Peter wanted not only to prepare the church to endure persecution, but to be ready to give a witness in the midst of the persecution. Near the end of his life, Jesus warned his disciples. Luke 21, 12, he said, believers will persecute you. They're going to punish you. You're going to be dragged before kings and governors and councils. You're going to be thrown into prison. And then he says this, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Isn't Isn't that remarkable? Opportunity. Jesus says, this is a good thing. An opportunity. He calls persecution an opportunity. Then he continues, settle it therefore in your minds. Prepare yourself, settle it. Not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Now, Jesus isn't saying studying apologetics is bad. Okay, we like apologetics. Apologetics, good. That word defense here is apologian in the Greek. Doctrine is good. Rather, Jesus is saying, if your heart is equipped and prepared to give a defense through reverence, through honoring me, you'll be able to beat the strongest adversary regardless of book smarts. You have to remember, this letter is written to Christians who probably can't even read. (laughs) They have to have someone else read the letter for them. How are they possibly able to give a defense? Do you know history? How did the martyrs, you know what that word martyr means? Witness. How did they testify to the hope that was in them? Well, they stood in the Colosseum. And when everyone said, recant, Jesus Christ, they said no. And they died. And they stood before those governors and those kings and they boldly proclaimed the gospel. They said, Jesus Christ, I will stand upon him. I will not bow to an emperor. I will not bow to other gods. Glorious deaths in honor of their king, Jesus, whom they loved and revered in their hearts. What about us? You've all heard the best defense is a good offense. It's true of Christianity. Our offense is our defense. It's the gospel. It's the gospel in both word and deed. Paul's defense in Acts. He is placed before King Agrippa. This is Acts 26.6. Paul says, now I stand here on trial. Listen to this. You're going to hear it everywhere now. Everywhere now. I stand here on trial because of my hope. In the promise made by God to our fathers. In verse 8, he asks, 
Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? You see where Paul's defense is? It's in the hope and it's in the resurrection. Hope, resurrection. And if we ever divorce our witness, our testimony from the reality of the empty tomb, then our hope is no hope at all. Our hope is no hope at all. Festus, who is sitting next to King Agrippa while Paul is giving this, is upset. He's mad at Paul. Acts 26, 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, you know you've lost when the other side starts yelling. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're crazy, Paul. I won't, la, 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 I'm not going to hear any more of it. The gospel offended Festus. It was absurd to him. He was blind to the truth that Paul was presenting. And even that persecution, whenever you're persecuted because of righteousness, because of your faith, even that persecution is out of fear. It's fear of the other person, scared to death of the light. You see, that's the whole thing. If we fear God rather than what men fear... They're terrified of us. They're scared to death of us because the darkness hates the light. And so to break the fear that holds us captive, we must confess the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ with boldness and believe it. Not just mental assent, but with our heart. We must confess it with our heart's devotion. Yes, Jesus, I will go. I will die for you. I will live for you. We bear witness to the light. The fear of the Lord in the heart of the Christian is not fear of guilt. It's not fear of condemnation. It is not fear of judgment. It is fear of displeasing our Lord. It is a holy awe before his love and his grace towards us. And so our courage is born out of our hope. Our courage is born out of our hope in Jesus Christ. Christian hope is not a substitute for faith but rather faith that takes hold of the future promises of God now. Christians should have assurance of their salvation. I want you to have assurance in the promises of God. You should have hope, not wishful thinking. If you ask a Muslim, how do you have hope? He will say, I hope Allah will forgive me. The Christian says, I know God has already forgiven me in Jesus Christ. The Buddhist says, I'll do acts of generosity. I'll repeat phrases of forgiveness towards myself and others, and then I'll be forgiven. And the Christian says, we have offended God first and foremost, and only he can truly forgive. The Hindu says, my sins are forgiven through recitation, through sacrifice, through fasting, through rituals. And the Christian says, my sins are forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, what sets Christianity apart from every other religion is we have a Savior who did what we were unable to do. Christianity does not call us first to work for God, but rather to hope in God's work already done for us. Christian hope is the form that faith takes under the threat of death, under the pains of suffering, And Peter shows us that our hope provides both the courage for our witness and the content of our witness. 
Think again about those who you have in your life. Who do you love in your life? Your parents, your siblings, your spouse, kids. And if I said, why? Why do you love your spouse? Would you have to, well, let me go get a book. Let me go read some marriage. You know, why do you love your kids? I, I don't, uh. Why do you work that job? Do you have to have, did you have to prepare the defense for all those questions beforehand? Maybe for some jobs. Maybe you don't like your job very much. Why, why do you love Jesus Christ? Is there any book other than the Bible that could ever give you the answer for that question? If you revere Christ in your heart, if you honor him in your, in your heart, it will pour out of you. <laughs> you will be unable to, to stop giving a defense for the hope. Oh, I can't. I'm so glad you asked. I'm so glad you asked why I love Jesus. Let me tell you. This is not blind faith. This is blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. He's mine. And if you are a believer, he's yours. Beloved, do not be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And when you give a defense, Peter says, do it with gentleness. Do it with respect. Don't be a jerk. (laughs) When you truly understand the gospel, it should humble you like no other. I didn't I didn't do anything to earn it. Yeah, it's a gift. It's a gift of grace. I I don't have to work for God's love. No. No, you have all the righteousness of Christ. That should humble you. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When you flick on the light in the middle of the night, it's offensive. It's offensive. And your eyes can't stand it. And that's the way the dark is. And when you are zealous for shining forth the light, you will be persecuted. Final two verses. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good than it is, if that be God's will, than for doing evil. What Peter is saying is bold words will honor the Lord only if they're acquainted with a consistent, quiet, humble life. If you are speaking bold words all the time, but you don't look like Jesus, no one will listen. No one will listen. I I like that Jesus, they say, but I don't like his Christians. Again, Paul's standing trial in Acts 24, 16 says, So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And so in order to be gentle and respectful and humble, we have to keep a good conscience. That conscience, one commentator defines it as such. He says, a person's inner awareness of the moral quality of his or her own actions. And so the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts brings our consciences before God. And in God's presence, we are transformed, we are exposed to His light, the light of His Word. And because Christ alone is the Lord of the conscience, we know we can now be free from false guilt and false condemnation. When the devil comes and says, oh, you've done it again, haven't you? 
You can say, Christ is my righteousness. And he says, no condemnation. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? And so a clear conscience of being justified by Christ is freeing for a faithful witness. You think about Jiminy Cricket. He's what Disney puts forth as a conscience. And some people are like Pinocchio, and when he chirps, they shut him up. Stop chirping so loudly. A clear conscience gives us stamina in the Christian life. It's sensible to fear trouble. But when we look at the heroes of the faith, trouble was essential to their stories. (laughs) Think of every great hero. They were marked oftentimes by the trouble they experienced and their triumph. And so when troubles come... We can take heart knowing that God is working through them. Therefore, the things we fear and the suffering we endure always needs to be evaluated through the lens of the cross. I'll close with a story. In 1510, the great reformer Martin Luther traveled to Erfurt, Germany, over the Alps to the city of Rome, 639 miles on foot. He was exhausted from his travels and he he, he crawled up the Scala Sancta, which is 28 marble steps on his knees. And those stairs were the same ones thought that Jesus Christ ascended as he went to face Pontius Pilate. And when Luther crawled up the steps, he got up to the top and there was a friar with a little wooden box. And Luther put his coins in and the friar handed him an indulgence was confirmation, the long pilgrimage, all those steps, all those scales, the scaling of the steps of the, on your knees and the coins, that was all good works. And that indulgence would pay for his sins so he wouldn't have to suffer in purgatory. Now there was nothing controversial about that for Luther. That was the church's teaching. But something haunted him. Would that be enough? Would that be enough? How many good works would be enough To get into heaven. Because despite all his zeal, he felt guilty. He did not have a clear conscience before God. Indulgences were supposed to be a tangible assurance. You would would pay your money, you'd get the indulgence, and that was assurance of your salvation, your, your right standing. But what if it wasn't so? In 1517, Luther's doubts about indulgences only grew. There was a monk by the name of Johann Tetzel, who would collect indulgences, and he would say, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And he sold a bunch of indulgences. But Luther saw it for what it really was. It was exploitation of the poor German people. They were going to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica, and they needed money. And all these poor Germans were being told, your spiritual security, the security of others, those you love, can be bought at a price. Would that be enough? Is that what Scripture said? Was that pleasing to God? One by one, Luther penned 95 statements. He said, I've got some problems with these indulgence preachers. And if you wanted to invite debate in those days, you'd go to the castle church door, and he took his 95 theses and he hammered 
on the castle church door, nailed them up there to invite debate. October 31st, 1517, All Hallows Eve. We fast forward three years, October 10th, 1520. Luther's now in trouble. Him and Rome are fully at odds, and he receives a note of his own, this time from the Pope. And the Pope says, you are declared a damnable heretic, lest you recant your teachings, you'll be excommunicated from the church. If you know the rest of the story, you know at the Diet of Worms, the Diet of Worms, Luther stood bravely before the council, and with these infamous words, he said, unless I am convinced by the scriptures or by clear reason... For I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. It's neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot, otherwise, I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Luther was prepared to give a defense for the hope that was in him because he had discovered that men and women were justified not by works, but by faith alone in Christ. He was zealous for doing good, and he was persecuted because of it. He faced the most powerful man of that time in the Pope, and he said along with Peter, I must obey God rather than men. He suffered for doing good, and yet all of us have benefited from his zeal. We could say the only thing Luther lacked was gentleness and respect. Tuesday is the 506th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And in God's providence, here we are today. The legacy of men like Luther, Calvin, Huss, Zwingli, Zinzendorf, Wycliffe, countless others, To stand boldly on the truth of God's word is alive and well in this room. We here today carry the torch and we declare justification is by faith alone, through grace alone, Christ alone. All glory be to God alone. Beloved, what is the reason for the hope that is within you? What is it that you dread in this world that today you could exchange for the fear of the Lord? Are you daily preparing your heart by honoring Christ? Do you understand the content of the gospel? Do you believe it? In his last moments on this earth, Luther was asked by his friend, Justice Jonas, do you want to die standing firm on Christ and the doctrines you have taught? And Luther said emphatically, yes. His last words were, we are beggars. This is true. All we have is Christ. All we have is Christ. And thanks be to God for in having him, we have everything we could ever need. Let's pray.